Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 9. We're going to finish the chapter going from verse 38 to verse 50. We are at Peter's house in Capernaum. Jesus and the disciples having just descended the Mount of Transfiguration and come back. And on the way, they had this discussion. The disciples did. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, in, in the first part of Mark chapter 9, has just finished telling them, look, you've got to be like a servant, like a slave. You've got to be like a child if you're going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. And he picked up a little kid and put the little child in his arms as an object lesson. And that's important as we try to understand the context of the last 13 verses of Mark chapter 9. And the context is difficult because it seems, excuse me, the, not the context, but uh, trying to piece together the pieces of the context is difficult because it doesn't seem like they fit together too well. So I'm going to try to do that. So we start in Mark 9, verse 38. John said to him, this is John, the son of Zebedee, one of the apostles, said to him, Jesus, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now what John is doing is, is what John is doing is exhibiting the same behavior that he and Peter and James and probably the rest of the disciples were exhibiting when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration trying to figure out who was going to be the big shot in the kingdom of heaven, in the messianic kingdom that they thought was coming, the political kingdom, the, the kingdom with military and political glory, worldly glory. They're still exhibiting that same attitude because now John sees somebody else who's not one of the 12 doing the same things that they were doing, casting out demons in Jesus' name, although it must be pointed out that nine of the disciples had failed to cast out that epileptic demon right after they came down off the Mount of Transfiguration. But in general, they're going out doing the same things that they were doing, and they were jealous of it. And in fact, they tried to stop him. But why? Because he wasn't following us. He wasn't in our ministry. He's in somebody else's ministry, and by golly, we're not going to have anybody get in the way of our megachurch ministry. Well, John is still showing selfishness, the desire for control and power. Now, who was this someone that was out there casting out demons in an unauthorized manner, in a manner not sanctioned by the apostles? He could have been a disciple of John the Baptist, so say John, suggest John Gill and Adam Clark. He could have been one of the 70 who had been sent out by Christ, but who didn't come back with the original group. This is Adam Clark's view. Or it's just somebody who wasn't operating out of contempt, but ignorance. He'd heard that Jesus could cast out demons, and he saw it being done in Jesus' name, so he just used Jesus' name and cast, out, cast, cast demons out. That wasn't the first time. That, that wasn't the only time that was done. You recall in the book of Acts, people were doing that in Jesus' name. And I think, if I recall correctly, they were people who didn't even believe in Jesus. Now, there's an interesting story in the book of Numbers that exhibits the same spirit. Numbers 11, verse 26 through 30. This is the story of Eldad and Medad. Numbers 11, verse 26. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses asked him, asked Joshua, Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would place his spirit on them. So even Joshua had this problem of unauthorized spiritual activity. And I'll tell you what, this is, a, this is such a human 
common human failing. You see it all the time in the churches of Christ. People getting jealous of somebody else, and usually it ha- it's because they're, they believe something a little bit different, and so that's enough to disqualify them. I'll tell you right now, I disagree with about 95 to 96, maybe 97% of what John MacArthur teaches, but by golly, he's out there preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and I'm not going to say anything bad about that. I might say something bad about a bunch of his other stuff, but not about that. He's on, he's on my side. He's against the devil, and he's for Jesus. And that's the attitude we ought to take toward everybody who's out there preaching the name of God. I mean, I was driving to the beach one time. I looked at this little church in the in the tobacco land of South Carolina. Out in the countryside, it was a shack. It had a little hand-painted sign, something about the fire-baptized Church of Jesus Christ. I don't know. It had one of these funny names. You know, it might have been a black church. I'm not sure. They got names about 50 words long. And I looked at it, and I thought, the gospel has penetrated even into here. The gospel penetrates everywhere. We ought to be thank God for everybody that's preaching the gospel. Even in the highest levels of the government, you got these nasty politicians going to Bible studies. Even in the Catholic Church, you'll find lots of people who really believe in Jesus, despite all the bad doctrine. We need to be thankful for that. Mark 9, verses 39 through 41. Before I go on, let me point out there are parallels to this to these to this passage in Mark in Matthew eighteen, six through fourteen and Luke nine, forty nine through fifty. Only two verses in Luke, they don't add anything, so we're gonna leave that out. And Mark Matthew eighteen has one little section that adds to the story, maybe two two little pieces that add to the story which I'll mention when I finish with Mark. Most of it's in Mark here. So we go to Mark 9, verse 39 through 41. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. And of course, Jesus is speaking of the man casting out demons. He says miracle. No one who will perform a miracle. If you cast out demons, the same thing as performing a miracle. He's doing a work in Jesus' name. And if he does something in Jesus' name, well, you know, that means he must care about Jesus. Someone he's not going to speak evil of him. Verse 40. For whoever is not against us is for us. This man obviously is not against Jesus. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name. 41, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you he will never lose his reward. Jesus is basically saying here, look, by that man casting out a demon, he's giving you a cup of water to drink. He's helping you out. He's refreshing you because casting out demons is your job too. The idea is for the disciples to help one another, not to compete with one another. There's a similar scripture in different occasion, not a parallel, in Matthew 10, verse 42. And whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, I assure you he will never lose his reward. So the idea here is do good things for your fellow believers. Do good things for your fellow believers, not just your family, not just yourself, although that's fine to do. Of course, it's good to do things for your family, good things for yourself. But also, do good things for your fellow believers. And guess what? You're not going to lose a reward. You're going to get a reward for helping out your fellow believers. There's nothing more satisfying than to help out fellow believers. You should get up in the morning and think, now how can I help this? Can I pray for them? Can I teach them some of the words of Jesus? Can I give them some encouragement as they stumble through the vicissitudes of life? Whatever it might be. We go to Mark 9, verse 42. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, and remember, Jesus has got a little kid in his arms now. That's from the previous portion of Mark, chapter 9. 
Jesus has this little one in his, in his arms. Whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me. And he's using that child as an object lesson to stand for his disciples, the people who follow Jesus. It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, look, you are hurting my people when you attack my ministers who aren't in your little group. Now, we're going to have to do a little bit of uh, interpretation here. One of these little ones, who is it that he's referring to? He's referring to little children in age. Whoever calls the downfall of a little kid who believes in Jesus, Gil rejects that, and I do too. I don't think that's what he's doing to, what he's mainly referring to. Remember, these little children are an object lesson. I want you ministers of the gospel to act like little children, to be humble. So, so what he's really referring to is the object of the symbolism of the little child, namely the disciples. So another option for who the little one could refer to is baby Christians. In other words, when Christian leaders get into a pissing contest, their spiritual children are hurt. It's better to be drowned in the sea with a millstone around the leader's neck before you hurt one of his children. Another option is the little one who believe in Jesus could be the man who was out there casting out the demon, but who wasn't one of the 12 apostles. It could have been that also. I think this is a tough question. In my humble opinion, the little ones refers to baby Christians or disciples, people who believe in Jesus, and the way that they could be have their downfall caused is by their leaders fighting with one another. Maybe it's just because I've seen too much of that. I don't know, but I believe that's what Jesus was talking about, although I do say it is a, is somewhat of a close question. could refer to the man who believed in Jesus by casting demons out, and now here you are trying to stomp on him, leave him alone. That's a good option, too. I'm not sure between those two which it is. Now, this idea of a millstone hung around his neck, there were two kinds of millstone. There was a small millstone, small enough to be turned by a female slave. Then there was a bigger millstone, that was turned by a donkey or an ox or something. Some manuscript, and that was so heavy that a female slave couldn't turn it, and it would be really heavy, so that if it was thrown around your neck, put around your neck, and you were thrown into the sea, you'd drop like a rock, like they say. Some manuscripts say it would be better for him if a heavy millstone turned by a donkey. That The phrase turned by a donkey is added to there, although not all manuscripts do that. Anyway, the idea is clear going to be bad for you you cause one of jesus's little ones to stumble so don't go around criticizing his little ones who are preaching the gospel outside of your little group that could be it or don't get into a fight with other leaders and thus cause damage to the little ones under your care when they see the jealousy of their leaders fighting with one another mark 9 verse 43 through 44 and if your hand causes your downfall cut it off it is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and Go to hell, the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, what he's saying here is don't cause people to stumble. And that means don't get into fights with other leaders who are doing the gospel in a way that you don't like the way they're doing it. Don't do that. That will cause your downfall. Now, Jesus is going to use a, a hyperbole here. And I'm going to show you you cannot take it literally. Well, let's just do that first. If your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. Okay, so now you've got one hand. It is better for you to enter life maimed. That means eternal life. It is better for you to go into eternal life with one hand than to have two hands and go to hell. Now, it is impossible for you 
to enter into the afterlife in the resurrection life with one hand because you're going to be perfectly restored. You're going to have a resurrected body. You're not going to have one hand. And Jesus is going to continue with this hyperbole and have your hand cut off, your foot cut off, and your right eye cut off. You're going to enter into eternal life without a hand, without a foot, without an eye? Of course not, because this was not meant to be taken literally. All you literalists out there, all you dispensationalists who talk about literal, literal, literal all the time, can't be literal here. Now, it talks about the un... Uh, it's better it would be better to go to hell here than to cause somebody to stumble basically is what he's saying we have a manuscript problem so let's talk about that first where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched well first of all that's in brackets in the home of christian study bible because not all manuscript all the ancient manuscripts have it and there's another place too which in next verse 45, the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's also questionable and in brackets in the Holman Christian Study Bible. However, in verse 48, it also says where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And that is not in brackets. In other words, there's no manuscript problem there. It's everywhere. Probably the scribes got carried away and copied it in two different places where they shouldn't have. Is my guess. I don't know, but the point is that is in the scripture where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Now, what does that say about people who deny the reality of hell? Either it's punishment or your consciousness in it or it's eternality. It doesn't say a lot, I'll tell you that. Now, you could say that Jesus is just using hyperbole, just like I said, because it's impossible to go into life main. Well, therefore, it's impossible to go into hell. But there's too many other places in hell, in the scriptures that talk about going to hell, a literal hell. So we're not going to fly with that argument. We're not going to go anywhere with that argument. Where does this come from? Well, first of all, this is this whole idea about your right eye, your right foot, and your right hand being cut off. If if it causes, if there's something that, and, and, and that's compared to something that causes you to stumble, it's better to lose those limbs and make it into heaven. That's in the Sermon on the Mount too, Matthew 5:29 through 30. Jesus says exactly the same thing. So it's a, it was that just illustrates that a lot of times Jesus's teachings show up in two different places, and it's to distinguish them. You have to know place and time. That's why it's good to get a harmony and go through it and figure out when did Jesus say it and to who he said it to, and when he said it. The reference that Jesus makes about the worm not dying and the fire not quench, being quenched in hell comes from Isaiah 66 verse 24. Quote. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all mankind. <laughs> the worm never dying means the worms on a dead body, when they start eating up the corpse, they just keep right on eating. And the fire never going out is obvious. Here's a quote from Gill in, in his inimitable style. Quote, As a worm that is continually gnawing upon the entrails of a man gives him exquisite pain, so the consciences, consciences of sinners will be continually flying in their faces, bringing their sins to remembrance, accusing them of them, upbraiding them with them, aggravating them, tormenting them for them, filling them with dreadful anguish and misery, with twinging remorses and severe reflections, and which will never have an end. This will always be the case. Conscience will ever will be ever distressing, racking, and torturing them. It will never cease. Now let me say that these metaphors about fire and hell, this not this doesn't necessarily mean that hell's gonna be fire, because in other places eternal darkness and fire and darkness don't go together. 
I love to watch near-death experiences, especially the Christian ones, the ones that people go to hell and they get and they see how bad it is and want to go, and then they call to heaven and God delivers them out of hell. You cannot believe in that if you want. I suggest you look at all the, uh, the testimony and see whether that testimony is credible. I believe it is. But I, but the thing about the people who testify about hell, it is perfectly hellish, awful, terrible. Why would anybody want to risk going there? Well, because today the American church is scared to death to even mention the word hell. And as a result, nobody's scared of it. And as a result, the majority of people in American culture today think that you're automatically going to go to heaven without having to repent, without having to believe in Jesus, without having your sins atoned for. That's the pitiful shape that the church in America has gotten itself into, and people are going to hell because of that, speaking from human terms. Let's go to Mark 9, verses 45 through 48. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. In brackets here, the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47, and if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So that's two heavy parables there. Millstone around your neck, bottom of the sea, or be thrown into hell with eternal worm turning in your gut and fire burning you up forever. Jesus took it very seriously. Don't call don't do anything that will harm his little children don't do anything there's some other verses that refer to hell in eternal terms matthew 3 12 not parallel passage here his winnowing shovel it is is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn up with fire that never goes out that's a difficult verse for those who say hell is not eternal eternal now we go to mark 9 40 9, and we have a very short verse, but a very difficult verse. It says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Now the question here is, who is the everyone Jesus is referring to? Is he referring to everyone who is in hell? Which means the context would be the previous verses where he talked about people who cause his little ones to stumble to be thrown into hell. They Will they be salted with fire? Or is it everyone who believes? Then the context would be the next verse, verse 50, where Jesus is clearly talking to his disciples because he said, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's talking about his disciples there. Which way does it go? I think you're going to see it's a close question. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said this is a difficult verse on which much has been written. I'm going to give you three options. Option one, unbelievers preserved in hell, just like salt preserves meat. Unbelievers are going to be preserved in hell, but not with salt, but with fire. And they're going to be down there being burnt forever. That's option number one. Unbelievers preserved in hell. Option number two. Unbelievers destroyed in hell. Just like fire destroys, unbelievers are going to be destroyed in hell by fire. Option three. Believers, believers, not non-believers now, but believers who are preserved, not destroyed, but preserved through their trials. And the, the interesting thing is option number one. Unbelievers who are preserved in hell the way salt preserves. That's taken up by John Gill. He believes that. Option number two, unbelievers destroyed in hell. The NIV Study Bible takes that position. I said Gil believes that. He mentions that. I'm not sure if he takes a position. Option number one, unbelievers preserved in hell. John Gill suggests that. That's actually the majority view, actually. Adam Clark believes it, too. Option number two, unbelievers destroyed in hell. Gil mentions that, but the NIV Study Bible takes that position. 
Option number three, believers who are preserved through their trials, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, affirm that position. So you see there's a split of opinion everywhere. So let's look at it a little closer. Here's a quote from John Gill supporting option number one, that everyone who is in hell will be preserved forever and ever with fire in hell, just like salt preserves meat. Here's his quote. What salt is to flesh, as that keeps flesh from putrefaction and corruption, so the fire of hell, as it will burn, torture, and distress rebellious sinners, it will preserve them in their beings. They shall not be consumed by it, but continued in it, so that these words are a reason of the former, showing and proving that the soul in torment shall never die or lose any of its powers and faculties, and particularly not its gnawing, torturing conscience and that the fire of hell is inextinguishable, for though sinners will be inexpressibly tormented in it, they will not be consumed by it. But the smoke of their torments shall ascend forever and ever, and that they will be so far from being annihilated by the fire of hell that they shall be preserved in their beings in it, as flesh is preserved by salt. Well, that's sort of a prolix way of saying it, kind of a roundabout, long-winded way of saying it, but you get the idea. Salt preserves meat. All believers are going to be preserved in hell, and their, and their torment will last forever. Such language we will not hear in the modern American church. Adam Clark says this, quote, It is generally supposed, notice this is the common opinion now, at least back in the 1800s, It is generally supposed that our Lord means that as salt preserves the flesh with which it is connected from corruption, so this everlasting fire, this inconsumable fire, will have the property not only of assimilating all things cast into it to its own nature, but of making them inconsumable like itself. Here's another quote from Adam Clark. If this, be, if this passage be taken according to the common meaning, it is awful indeed. Here may be seen the greatness, multiplicity, and eternity of the pains of the damned. They suffer without being able to die. They are burned without being consumed. They are sacrificed without being sacrificed, are salted with the fire of hell as eternal victims of the divine justice. And that, my friends, was written by an Arminian. And you know, Arminians like to soften the idea of judgment a lot. They think Calvinists are a little too austere. But that's, that's why, that was by an Arminian. Those were the days, my friend. These people weren't wussy-puss American preachers who scared to death. They're going to run off a parishioner who's putting money in the collection plate if he mentions hell. Option number two. Option number two is this verse refers to unbelievers who are destroyed in hell. Not preserved, but destroyed in hell. Still unbelievers, they're in hell, but they're destroyed, not preserved. If we read Leviticus 2.13, we read this. You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. So the idea is when you do a grain offering... Not a meat offering, but a grain offering. You put salt on it, and it gets burnt up on the altar. And so you have salt connected with destruction by fire, salted by fire. So sinners in hell are like sacrificial offerings being burnt up. It's interesting that even, as Gill points out, even heathens, they also had this idea that sacrifices were no good without salt. So the idea is that unbelievers are going to be sacrificed in hell on the, in the fires of hell. That's a reasonable pres presumption. That would fit in with, of course, the the previous context of why you're going to be cast into hell if you cause one of my little ones to stumble. Let's go to the third option. There, everyone who will be salted with fire refers to believers, not unbelievers, but believers who are preserved through trials. 
The fire then means the fiery trials which season the believer. Now you got a problem with the context here because Jesus has been talking about hell and all of a sudden we switch to trials. And Jesus has been talking about people damned to hell and also now he's talking about the disciples, the saved people. Well, the answer to that, if you take this option, is is true. The verse doesn't fit with the previous context, but the previous context could then cause Jesus to pivot to verse 50 where he's clearly talking about his disciples and he's talking about salt in verse 50. Salt is good, he says. How can you make it salty? Salt among yourselves. Be at peace among you. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. So that chance... So in other words, the context does fit if you look at the next verse. NIV Study Bible takes this position and says that every Christian in this life will undergo the fire of suffering and purification. And to fit and to make a, a, a further argument for option C, that this is referring to believers who are being preserved through trials, is that Jesus at the end of verse 50 says, be at peace with one another. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another, which fits with the idea don't go around criticizing Somebody that's not in your apostolic band who's casting out demons in my name. Don't fight with fellow workers. So it does fit the context. So that's a, that's a good, that's a perfectly reasonable option that um, that when Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, he's talking about believers. His disciples will be salted by fire as they go through their trials. They need to be at peace with one another. But the other interpretations make sense too. Either unbelievers being preserved in hell or destroyed in hell. I think strong arguments can be made for those also. So I'm not going to take a position on that to each his own. Mark 9, verse 50. Jesus continues, Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think what he's talking about here is salt preserves. They use salt to preserve meat. Salt should lose its flavor. How can you make it salty? In other words, if it quits preserving meat, uh, that's it. You you can't make it salty again. You can't give it give it its power to preserve meat again. And you got to throw it out. The implication is it's worthless. Don't be worthless, disciples. Have salt among yourselves. In other words, be salt to one another. Preserve one another. Care for one another. And then he literally says, be at peace with one another. There is nothing worse than getting into fights with fellow Christians. I've been there. Hell. It's hell on earth. Now, sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes it's necessary because sometimes fellow Christians can do things that if they were in your church, it would involve church discipline, and that's not pleasant. And sometimes, you know, you, you know, I'm not advocating a position of pacifism here. Sometimes you have to protect people. But I'm telling you, if there's no need to protect anybody, stay out of it. I remember one time somebody called me to come down to a church three states from my, a long way away. They were having a big uproar, and I knew some of the people involved in it. And they were people who were kind of big in the in the circles I was moving in at the time. And I wrote him back, and I said, uh, well, you know, I wasn't asked to come down here. I don't know anything of the controversies going on, and I don't choose to get involved in somebody else's business. That's the church's job to straighten that out. And for my statesman-like position, brother wrote me back and told me I was a coward. <laughs> so, you know, you can't win. But I, my attitude is I'm going to stay at peace with everybody that I can stay at peace with. Now, if it involves somebody that's destroying my friend, you know, I've said, I, we had a guy one time that was destroying churches. He was busting up friendships, churches. He was an absolute disaster and a menace to the human race. And we had introduced this brother into our circles. And so I was responsible. I was partly responsible. And so we finally had to do something about that. And we did. And we shut him up. 
at great, great cost. So when Jesus says, be at peace with and we're at peace now because we shut him up. So when Jesus is saying, be at peace with one another, there's another verse. What does Paul say? As far as it is possible, be at peace with one another. That's Paul the Apostle said that. So you got that, you got to, you you don't get into fights unnecessarily, but sometimes you got to fight. You got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. And just to remind us of the context here, when Jesus says, be at peace with one another, he's referring to the disciples who started this whole conversation off by by arguing about who was going to be sit at his right hand, who was going to sit at his left hand, who was going to be the big shot in the kingdom of God. He says, don't fight over position. Don't fight over who's number one and who's number two. This apparently is one of the sins of the human race because it sure shows up a lot, not just in churches but in businesses and governments. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 to regard certain workers very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace as far as it is possible. Now let me go to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 18 verses 6 through 14. We'll pick up a few minor points and we'll shut it down for this audio. We read in Matthew 18:7, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now this is right in the middle, if you recall, where Jesus is saying that it'd be better for a millstone thrown around your neck and you drop, dropped to the bottom of the sea than if you should cause one of these little ones of Jesus, his disciples, to stumble. So he's talking about causing disciples to stumble. This is, this is in the middle of that in Matthew brings this up mark doesn't mention it woe to the world because of offenses offenses must come well what are offenses then iv says that offenses are things that cause people then iv study bible things that cause people to sin john gill says it's temptations to sin and these things cause woe to the world yes they do and it says for offenses must come why because we live in a sinful world as long as we live in a sinful world offenses must come there are always going to be temptations to sin there's always going to be things that cause people to sin there's always going to be things that cause jesus's little ones to stumble however that's no excuse for us because jesus then says but woe to that man by whom the offense comes personal responsibility folks here's a good example of here you have determinism yep we're going to have sins as long as we're in a sinful world it's going to happen but we also have individual responsibility in the context of that determinism because you are free to cause that offense to come or to not cause it to come. Now, how does this fit in with the context? Remember, the disciples were criticizing that man who was ministering outside of the twelve. Well, the disciples caused offense by attacking that man doing the exorcism. I believe that's the context. He, he, he attacked them, and he was causing offense to both to that man and also to the people who were watching the attack. All right, one little minor point here. Also, that woe to the world, Adam Clark says it can also be translated alas. Alas to the world. Clark says that shows a feeling of sympathy and concern to the world, less a feeling of judgment on the world. Well, I think Clark's Arminianism got the best of him here. Arminians always, always kind of downplaying that judgment idea. I just gave you a quote of Adam Clark where he gave a graphic description of hell, so Clark was a good Arminian. No, he doesn't deny the pains of hell for people who don't repent but you can see it time and time again whenever it comes to a verse that makes it sound like god is judging people oh no can't have that we gotta we gotta soften it a little bit i think that when jesus says woe to the world he means woe to the world we're going to be judged because of the sins of the world if we are contributing to the sins of the world 
we are going to participate in judgment that the world's going to receive. Of course, our judgment is not eternal because we don't go to hell. But still, if we do things that are sinful, we will be punished. There will be woe for us. We don't want to sin because sin has bad results. The wages of sin is death. I don't want to slowly die by committing sins. I want to try to be conformed to my new nature, which is the nature of Jesus Christ. The new man which was born again by the Holy Spirit. All right, now we got one more. One more. What do I do with it? Uh, one more comment to make about the parallel in Matthew. We're not going to talk about these extra things that Matthew puts into the discussion here. He mentions in verse 10, chapter 18, See that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father. There's the guardian angel verse. I talked about that in my audio on Matthew 18. You can check that out. I'm not going to go over it again here because this is only in Matthew. And then we hear the story about a man has a hundred sheep, one goes astray, and one is found that the people rejoice in heaven more over the one that was lost than the 99 that were already found. So we'll leave that out and shut this audio down. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time as we take up Mark chapter 10.